Uh, so two weeks ago at our Sunday morning gathering, we looked at uh, a passage from 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. And 2 Corinthians 5 is sort of a foundational text for our church. Uh, it really frames what we call our mission statement. Our mission statement is that we are seeking as a church to join God in His work of reconciliation by declaring and demonstrating the gospel of all, in all of life. Um, joining God in His work of reconciliation by declaring and demonstrating the gospel in all of life. So, so those are things that we are going to talk about often, and we do talk about often. Um, what I want to get into tonight is, is kind of what does that reconciliation piece mean? Um, we've talked about it a little bit, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. Uh, those two key verses from 2 Corinthians 5 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and I'll just read them to you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, these are verses 18 and 19. Paul says, Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So that was central to what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, that God has reconciled us to Himself through Christ. Christ is the agent of reconciliation, and He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So the Greek word, to get nerdy on you for a minute, the Greek word is the word katalasso. This is the word that we render reconciliation. And it's actually a pretty rare word in the New Testament. It, it's pretty much only found in the teaching of Paul and mostly in the letters to the church in Corinth, the letters in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And if you remember the context of the church in Corinth, this was a church that Paul had helped to found, but since Paul had left, they had kind of gone after all kinds of different things. Like they had believed false teachings, false gospels, and so a big part of 2 Corinthians is Paul calling them back to the true gospel of Jesus. And so that's one of the reasons why he's talking so much about reconciliation. He's like, don't you realize that Jesus has done this incredible work of reconciliation for us, but you guys are straying away from that message of reconciliation. You're buying into something else. So in a sense, you need to like be reconciled to that original belief you had in reconciliation, if that makes sense. That seems a little maybe hard to understand, but, but that's what he's calling people to in 2 Corinthians. You need to come back to this original message that I preached to you. Um, he also uses this in Romans chapter 5. I'll read you a passage real quick from Romans 5. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though per perhaps for a good one, for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received 
reconciliation. So the key verse in there is, uh, or the verse, key verse is verses 8 and 9, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the point he's making is, no one's like lining up to die for other people. No one's lining up to die for other people. Maybe someone would die for like a really righteous person. Like maybe that would happen. Maybe even for like a good person. But for a, like a, an evil person, for like a terrible person, like no one's going to do that. But Christ did that is what he's saying, that even while we were sinners, even when we were living in opposition to him, um, one way you could say that is even, when, even though we were evil, right? Even though we were not righteous, Christ died for us. And now we have been justified before God through his blood. So Paul is using this term over and over again to just display to us the incredible work that Jesus has done for us, like the incredible gift of salvation that Jesus has given to us. And that's why it's so astounding in 2 Corinthians that on one hand, he's describing this incredible thing that Jesus has done, and, and then he says he's entrusted to us this message of reconciliation, that we would go and declare to other people what has happened. So in the most literal sense, reconciliation is about two parties who were formerly opposed to one another, like making up and coming together, right? Two parties, in order for reconciliation to happen, it has to be at least two or more parties coming together and um, becoming one. Um, in order to reconcile, there has to be normally forgiveness. Normally there has to be some kind of change. Um, and somebody has to make the first move. I think about this like, uh, think about this on like the like kind of geopolitical scale. Um, think about like all of the countries that America has issues with right now. Like I was watching the news the other night, like we're, we're having significant issues with Iran right now. Uh, the Americans shot down a drone, an Iranian drone, just the other day. Um, but a couple weeks ago, the Iranians shot down an American drone. So there's this very like tit for tat thing that's going on right now. And what would it take for reconciliation to happen there, right? Well, there's going to have to be a level of forgiveness on both sides. There's got to be a level of compromise on both sides. Like people have to be willing to give up stuff. And, and somebody's got to make the first move. Like somebody has to pursue reconciliation. More than likely, both parties are not going to pursue reconciliation, especially when it's this you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this type thing going on. Paul's teaching us that God is actually the one who made the first move. God is the one who pursued us. That God is the one who came after us. The story isn't that we just wanted relationship with him so badly that we put aside our sin and we like went after him and his will and what he wanted for our lives. No, the story is that the father so loved us that he sent his only son to die so that we might have life. So just three quick doctrinal points that I think we need to understand. First of all, God, as we just said, has initiated this reconciliation. You did not initiate it, right? This is not something that you set in motion. This is something that He set in motion. It has been His work from the get-go. It has been His plan from the get-go. So God the Father initiated this. Secondly, Jesus' death 
and resurrection is what makes this possible. Um, this is what Paul's saying to us. Outside of Christ, this kind of thing can't happen. There can't be reconciliation because Jesus' death is the thing that makes it possible. Without him bearing our guilt and our sin on the cross, we would have no hope of in any way being just, ju justified before God. That's the word he uses, justified, like, like made right. Like, does that make sense? So Jesus is central in all of this. And the third thing is that this is not... This isn't like mutual reconciliation. So to go back to like the Iranian example, in order for reconciliation to happen there, there would have to be an element of uh, saying I'm sorry, like on both sides of the fence, right? Because both parties think that there is blame on either side. So it's like a two-sided thing. Um, that's normally the case, just in our interactions with other people in our life, people in our family, like people that we've had issues with in the past. In most cases, I would say, we think they've done something wrong, they think we've done something wrong, and that's why we're kind of at loggerheads. That's why it's, reconciliation is difficult, right? Because we have to forgive, maybe they feel like they have to forgive on some level, even if we don't agree, right? Even if you don't think you've done something wrong, oftentimes the other party does. Um, however, when it comes to God, this isn't mutual reconciliation. It is one-sided in that we alone are the offending party, right? We are the ones who have offended God. We are the ones who have done something wrong. It is because of our sin that there is this separation in the first place. Like that is why it exists. So God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to him. I think it's important for us to get that straight. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there aren't people out there who don't on some level feel offended by God, right? But, but it's not because God has sinned against us. It's not because God has done anything wrong. I think the thing, especially when we start talking about the gospel, I think the thing that is so offensive to people about the gospel, about God himself, is the fact that it challenges our sense of personal autonomy. Because a big part of the gospel message is that you need to give over control of yourself to him, like you need to let go of pursuing your own way or pursuing your own identity or pursuing whatever you think is important. And you need to turn that over to him. And there are plenty of people out there who, if they receive that message, that what God most wants from you is you, not just for you to go to church, not just for you to be a nice moral person, but he wants you. He wants you to give yourself to him and to trust him with your life and to do what he tells you to do. That's incredibly offensive to many people because it challenges our sense of, no, I'm my own person, right? Uh, there, uh, here's my English major nerd coming out. There's a poem um, called Invictus um, that's fairly well known, and I'm trying to remember the author's name, Ernest somebody. Anyway, the poem Invictus um, is basically him saying, I am the master of my fate. Like, I am, I am the captain of my life. Right? I'm the one. And he, and he kind of says, like, even though the world is dark, even though there are tears, even though there are all these terrible things in the world, I, I'm going to plow forward. I'm going to go ahead because I'm the one who controls my destiny, in a sense. Um, and, and I may be making this up, but I believe I've read before that that poem was carried in, like, the pockets of GIs during World War II. Um, that it was meant to be like, you were meant to read it and be like inspired to like go into battle. Like I, I'm in control, I make the rules, I'm the boss, 
And like, so I'm, I'm going for it. And it's just, it's like if you really believe that there is a God, if you really believe that he has sent his son Christ, like that kind of arrogance is such an affront to him and like what he has done. Um, that if you really believe that, but yet at the same time think, but I control things and I'm the master of my fate and I'm the captain of this ship of my life, right? Those two things just don't go together, right? So, so that's part of this reconciliation process. Like we have to find how these things start to fit together. So here's what I want to get at tonight. If we have been sent with the message of reconciliation to call others to be reconciled to Christ, like, how do we do that? How do we approach that? Um, and as I've said before, I'm of the opinion that telling others your story, your story of reconciliation, your story of what Christ has done for you is of the utmost importance, that it's literally the most compelling thing that you could do. And Guys, this is what it means to be a witness for Christ. Well, like we don't maybe use as much that term, like witnessing. I don't know, if you grew up in the church, maybe you heard it more. I, feel, I don't feel like I hear it a lot anymore, but when I was a kid, I heard it a lot, that we were, we were going to witness. We kind of used it as a verb. I'm going to witness for Jesus, meaning I'm going to go tell somebody about Jesus, or I'm going to go share the gospel with somebody. But what does it mean to be a witness? Like if, if you've seen a crime occur, and, and you're going to start talking to the police, what, what are you going to tell them, right? You're not going to say, well, here's what I saw on the news about this, or here's what I read in the paper about this. No, you were a, a witness to this. So you're going to describe for them what you saw in your own words. Here's what happened. Here's what I experienced when I was there. And, and guys, I think the same thing is true when it comes to the gospel. Like if we're going to be witnesses for Jesus, what we're talking about there is not just sharing some like prescripted presentation, um, which some of us have learned, being a witness for Jesus is about talking um, or, or telling the story of what he has done in your life. Like, what have you witnessed? What have you experienced? Um, and so I, I don't want to put anybody on the, on the spot, but, but I was wondering, like, if, if anybody would be willing to just maybe share uh, your story real quick in five minutes tonight. Like, what, what has Jesus done for you? Uh, and, and while you're thinking about possibly doing that, Justin and I were in Atlanta um, a couple months ago. We've been going through this process of being trained and certified as um, basically Christian coaches. And we were at this training thing in Atlanta. And I remember as a part of the training, the, the guy who was leading said, hey, turn to your neighbor and just take two minutes, share the gospel with your neighbor. And, and there was like an obvious like pause and this was a room full of like pastors and ministry leaders and everybody kind of went, oh, really? Okay. Like you could tell that like everybody was a little bit uncomfortable. It felt a little bit unnatural. And, and I was just kind of thinking about this. Like why, why does this feel a little strange to like turn to your neighbor and share this incredible news? Like why does this feel a little bit weird? And, and I think it's because it, it really is something that's foreign to us in a way. Like the gospel is not of this world. Like the gospel is supernatural. And, and when you start to say it out loud, I think you're, you have to kind of deal with the fact that this is really weird in a sense. Like this is, this is not the normal kind of stuff that I talk about. And, and because, truthfully, for many of us, because the gospel is not like the central orienting axis of our lives, right? 
it, it, it feels a little bit unnatural to us. And so I think part of the process of discipleship, part of the process of sanctification, is actually getting to the point where the gospel is so central to your life that it doesn't feel unnatural anymore, that, that it, it just kind of oozes out of you, like it just comes out. And, and even in this room full of, you know, like people who supposedly share the gospel all the time, there was this little, little, just a little tinge of weirdness. However, I just think, man, if this guy had said, hey, turn to your neighbor, just tell your neighbor about who you are and what's important to you, or, or, or share your story with the person next to you, I, I don't think there would have been quite as much awkwardness initially. You know, what's so interesting about the postmodern world we live in and kind of the relativistic world that we live in today where you can kind of define reality for yourself, what, what, what's interesting is if you're just trying to present people with like facts, people will be quick to go, nah. But if you're telling somebody, here's what I've experienced, people are much slower to go, no, you didn't, right? Like that, that's, that's the interesting part of the world that we live in today. There was a time where that was less true, but it's more true today that if you tell somebody, hey, this is what I've gone through and this is what I've experienced, that people kind of go, oh, really? Okay. What, what's interesting is sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, my story's not really all that dramatic. I grew up in church. I've just always kind of known, you know. But it, here's the deal. If we believe the gospel, we're saying we've gone from death to life. Like, so, so we're literally talking about one of the most dramatic things that could ever occur. And I think we need to be careful in giving God glory as, as we tell our story, right? Like saying, hey, this isn't just because I, I decided I was going to be a better person, right? This is because God has done a work. Like God has moved and done the kind of things that only he can do in my life. Um, Jeff Vanderstelt, who's a pastor, uh, talks about preaching the gospel to ourselves, like reminding ourselves of the gospel. And he throws out four questions um, that I talked about a minute ago. Who is God? What has God done? Who are we in light of that truth? And how do we live in light of that truth? Who is God? What has he done? Who are we in light of the, that truth? And how do we live in light of that truth? And what Jeff Anderselt says is this is an easy way for us to just remind ourselves of the gospel, um, especially if we are experiencing uh, anything negative in our lives, fear, anxiety, worry, a particular sin issue that we keep dealing with. What, what we do is kind of go, hey, hey, what is the fruit of my life right now? Like, what are the things that are coming out of my life right now? And, and imagine it as a tree with fruit on it, and the fruit of your life are negative things at the moment. What he suggests doing is like working down the trunk of the tree by asking these questions. Who is God? What has God done? So God is the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth. Um, what has God done? Well, God has sent his only son, Jesus, so that we might be reconciled to him. So, so who am I now in light of what he has done for me? Well, I'm now a beloved son or daughter of the king. I've now been invited to dine at his table. Um, I've been reconciled to him. I've been sent as an agent of reconciliation to this world. And, and so, and finally, how do I live in light of that truth? Well, I'm going to turn over control to him, and I'm going to seek to put sin to death 
in my life, and I'm going to seek to share the good news of the gospel with other people, and I'm going to seek to love other people in the way that Jesus has loved me. And so by kind of going through those questions, he works his way kind of down that tree to the roots. And the whole point is that if the, if the foundation is good, if the roots are strong, like if, our, if the roots are built up with the gospel, that as we go back up the tree, what we wind up producing is good fruit. Does that make sense? Um, in Ephesians 2, Paul also asks some questions, not out front, but, but in his kind of argument here, he's asking some similar questions. Um, and even though Paul is not telling his story here, he is, in a sense, telling the story of the church at Ephesus. Um, and he answers also four basic questions. And, and I think these are four basic questions. They're similar to the ones I just mentioned, but that we should seek to answer in telling our stories. Four basic questions that I think we should answer in seeking to tell our stories. Um, and to give a little context for this, uh, Ephesus was a Greek city. Um, it was primarily a Gentile city in the sense that it wasn't necessarily a hub of Jewish life. It was a hub for Greek life. And um, this is what Paul says about their story. Here are the questions that he asks in Ephesians 2. First of all, he asks, who were you? Who were you? Um, in verses 11 through 12, he says, So, then remember that at one time... You were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. So that's Paul's beginning. That's the beginning of the story here for Ephesus. This is who you were. He says you were uh, without Christ, meaning you were without hope, you were without a future, you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel, you were foreigners to the covenants of promises. Uh, the covenants of promise would be the promise of Christ, the promise of a Savior that is coming. He then asks, so who is Christ and what did he do? This is who you were, but, but who is Christ and what did Jesus do? And what he says in verse 14 and 15 is that he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, the two being Jews and Gentiles, resulting in peace. And then he says in verse 17, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So who were you? You were Gentiles. You were separated from the promises of God. You were separated from Christ. Who is Christ? What did he do? He is our peace. He is the one who tears down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. He has proclaimed good news of peace to those of us who are far away and peace to those who are near. So the gospel is not just for Jews and it's not just for Gentiles. It's for both. The next question he asks is, why did he do this? So who are you? Who is Christ and what did he do? Why did he do this? Verse 16, he did this so that he might reconcile both Jews and Gentiles, both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility 
to death. And then in verse 18, for through him, we both now have access in one spirit to the Father. So why did he do this? He did this so that we might be reconciled to God, and he did this so that we might have access to God through the Spirit. All right, so let me, let me try to draw this out real quick. So what Paul is saying is that initially there was one house, the house of Israel. The house of Israel received the covenant promises. These were revealed in the law. This is what uh, God said to Moses, right? I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand and the sea, the stars in the sky. Ultimately, as I just said a minute ago, the big promise that's coming out of all of this is that there's ultimately going to be a savior for Israel. There's going to be a Messiah that's coming for Israel. Um, God said, you are my people. I am your God. I want you to follow me. However, in between is this, what Paul calls a dividing wall of hostility. Um, and really all this is, is sin. Like this is what separates us from God, this dividing wall of hostility. This is, this is the thing that needs to go away so that there can be reconciliation between the two. So God said, I want you to be my people, but there's this sin problem. There's this dividing wall of hostility. God gives them some level of reconciliation in that through the law. So by making sacrifices, people could on some level atone for their sin and be reconciled to God. But that reconciliation was temporary. It was very situational. It related to specific sins. And so for everything you did wrong, there had to be some kind of an atonement that took place. But the promise, the covenantal promise was there was coming a day when these like individual sacrifices for individual sins would no longer be needed. That at some point there would be this once and for all sacrifice for sin. Outside of this, there are all of these other kind of houses. There's the house of Israel, but outside of the house of Israel is everyone else. And these are the Gentiles. This is literally every other nation, tribe, and tongue. And what Paul says is, if you're a Gentile, you're not a part of these original covenantal promises. Like you've been separated from God. Like you weren't a part of the, the people whom God said, I want you to be my people and I will be your God. Now, because of Christ, both groups have become one. Through Christ, through his cross, there is now one house, and the dividing wall of hostility has now been replaced with peace. Through Christ. And so now the promises that God originally promised to Israel... It's now available to everybody. Does that make sense? So he's brought everybody together in one house. He says, I've done this so that you can be reconciled to the Father and so that you have access to the Father now through the Holy Spirit. So who are you? Who is Christ and what did he do? Why did he do this? And then finally ask the question, so who are you now? Like who are you in light of all of these things? And what he says in verse 13 is, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, you Gentiles, you Ephesians, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
And then in verse 19, he says, so then you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So, think of these things in light of your story. Like, this is kind of an abnormal situation. Most of the time, when you share the story of what Jesus has done in your life, you're not going to be sitting in a room with a bunch of other people, right? You're, you're more than likely going to be face-to-face with somebody. You're going to be having a com- private conversation. You're going to be sharing a meal together with some other people. And, and this is where those kinds of things will come up. Think about these questions. Like, who were you? Because that's some of what's so compelling about this, right? Is, I used to be this, but now because of Christ, this is what's the reality for my life. And, and for some people, that may not be like a moralistic thing. That may not be, I, I used to be addicted to this and this and this, and now that's no longer the case for me. But for everybody, there should be some level of transformation that has taken place, right? Doesn't mean I'm now sinless, doesn't mean I don't struggle with certain things now. No, no, no. But I've gone from death to life. So, so who were you? Um, secondly, who is Christ and what did he do? Right? If, if you're presenting your story of transformation, your story of change, if, if we're going to share this message of reconciliation with other people, in some way we have to go, and here's who Jesus is. Right? And here's, here's what he did. Here's why these kinds of things are possible in my life. So why did he do that? Well, he did that because he loves us. He did that because he wants us to be reconciled to the Father. And so who are you now? Right? I'm not perfect now, but, but I'm in a very different situation than I was before. I've actually, as we've talked about before, I've actually, like, I've now come to live in a new world because of what Christ has done for me. Like, that's what the New Testament talks about. Like, I now live in a new kingdom. And the thing is, and I'll close with this. Look at Colossians chapter 3 real real quick. Colossians chapter 3. I think this puts a nice bow on everything. This is also Paul writing. Colossians chapter 3. Um... In verse 3 and 4, he says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So, there is a sense in which you, the you that you used to know, have died, and there's a new you now. And that new you is really Jesus. Like he, what Paul says, we have been like created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. Like he is the source of our life and reconciliation now. And so that's when you hear people talk about like having identity in Christ. That's what we're talking about. It's not just like identifying with Christ or not identifying with the church. It's saying, no, no, no. He is the source of my life. I have found real life in Him. I've gone from death. That's where I was living before. Now I've found real life in Him. 
And since he is the source, he is now my identity. And, and I've taken on his righteousness. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see me and my sin. He sees Jesus and Jesus' righteousness. Skip down to verse 12. Oh, actually verse 11. Paul talks about this one house thing again. He says, so here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, bar barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. So Christ is this like uniting factor for those who follow him. So in light of all of that, here's, here's how we should live. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, this is, to go back to Jeff Vanderstelt's four questions, this is that last question, how do we live in light of the truth of Christ? Right? Colossians 3 is, is an incredible starting place. The first part of Colossians 3 is all about, here's what you throw off. Like, here's the sin you get rid of. And here's what you take on. And here's the deal. He mentions letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think that's something where if the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, then suddenly the gospel is just kind of coming out, right? And it's not this, let, let, me, let me present to you this four-part gospel presentation. No, no, no. It's just here's what's going on, right? Here's what Jesus has done for me. Here's what he's doing in me right now. Here's what's different. And, and I promise you guys, like, if, if some of these things that he's describing here, like, like forgiving other people, um, uh, having compassionate hearts, practicing humility and kindness, like if those things start to become central in your life, you better believe that the people around you are going to go, what is this? Like, who, like, where did this come from? Like, who are you? Why, like, why do you do things in this way? Because if this is really the way that you're living, this is not how people live, right? There are nice people out there, but this isn't really how people live. Practicing humility, like really putting other people in front of you, thinking of others more highly than you think of yourself, like, that's unheard of and deeply compelling, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So I think if we pursue this, we need to be prepared to give an account to other people. Be prepared to give an account for the hope that's within you. Where does this come from? It comes from what Jesus has done for me on the cross and this new life that I have found in Him. So let me pray for us tonight. And then we will come to the table for communion. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the truth of your gospel. And I pray, God, that you would give us a desire uh, to share our stories and to share the things that you have done within us, that we would be so moved by you and your great love, um, that this would just be a part of who we are, that we would share these stories with our children, our neighbors, our family, our friends, our coworkers and that we would live differently in light of what you have done for us. That this wouldn't be just something that we kind of mentally assent to or espouse, 
but that this truly would be the thing that shapes and forms the whole of our lives. Um, so, Father, help us to put sin to death. Help us to repent of our selfishness and our pride and our greed and our arrogance. And help us, Father, to give over all things to you. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.